Um, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Atlanta Council. I'm Barry Pavel. I'm a Council Vice President, uh, Arnold Cantor Chair and Director of the Brent Scowcroft Center on International Security here. And I'm really delighted to welcome you all to this important and very timely event, uh, NATO's role at sea with Admiral Mark Ferguson, who is the commander of Allied Joint Force Command Naples, commander of U.S. Naval Forces in Europe, and commander of U.S. Naval Forces Africa. This event is part of our project Charting NATO's Future, um, which is an effort in partnership with Norway's Ministry of Defense, where we look at the strategic challenges facing NATO and the broader transatlantic security community, and we come up with actionable recommendations as part of this effort to help the Alliance navigate a very, very challenging and dynamic um, security environment. In the Scowcroft Center, we ha um, many of our transatlantic thinkers believe that this century has an important maritime element and that the transatlantic community is not really uh, paying full attention yet uh, to the increasingly contested maritime domain. Certainly after a, a, a more than a decade of essentially ground-centric operations, which have shaped a lot of strategic thinking, a lot of uh, capabilities and planning. Uh, we think it's time that the Alliance and the U.S. find some ways to deal with this maritime domain and sort of update our thinking and our capabilities and our policies and our plans. Uh, friction with Russia is very much felt at sea, uh, in the Baltic, in the Black Sea, and other places. And certainly emerging powers in Asia are also expressing their ambitions and interests in the maritime domain. So NATO needs to step up to this uh, in a pretty uh, urgent fashion. To be sure, developing nations also are starting to increase their trade by sea, which places greater stresses on maritime security. We have climate change opening up new, uh, slowly opening up more sea lanes, um, some of which have never been opened before. Uh, so the great game of geopolitics may return to to some of those areas. And finally, new technologies are leveling the playing field among maritime competitors. So just with these factors alone, let, al let alone other challenges that I haven't yet mentioned, NATO has a lot of work to do. Uh, European Command has a lot of work to do. And certainly our commander here uh, um, is on top of these issues about how we can remain competitive in, in a domain that we haven't given um, as much thought to as a community as possible, and, and as we should. Uh, at the Scowcroft Center, we re recently released two reports that are relevant to this discussion. They're outside. One is on uh, a proposed new strategy for NATO broadly by um, distinguished fellow Frank Kramer um, that focuses on forward stability. Uh, and then another that's very relevant uh, that was called the Naval Alliance Preparing NATO for a Maritime Century, just released within the last few weeks. That's by Scowcroft Center. Deputy Director uh, Magnus Nordenman, who will be moderating Admiral Ferguson after his remarks. Both of them are available outside and also on our website, and I strongly commend uh, both to you. So we're very lucky to have Admiral Ferguson here to give us the benefit of his thinking on where the U U.S. is and where the, where the alliance is on thinking about these critical challenges. A few brief words about his background. Um, of course, he's the commander of Allied Joint Force Command Naples of U.S. Naval Forces Europe and U.S. Naval Forces Africa. Uh, this area covers 20 million square nautical miles of ocean, including the coasts of Europe, of Africa, the Mediterranean, and the Black Sea. So we're talking about three continents, um, more than 67% of the Earth's coastline, uh, 105 countries, and about 40% of the world's population. So this is pretty significant 
uh, coverage here for a command that doesn't get a lot of a lot of headlines, but we hope to begin to help change that right here. Um, also, from um, August 2011 to July 2014, Admiral Ferguson was the Vice Chief of Naval Operations. Uh, before that, he served as the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs, Chief of Naval Personnel, and, and many other important assignments. Very clearly, the Admiral is, is serving in a very critical role uh, in light of all these conditions, and we're just delighted to have him here. So, Admiral, welcome once more to the Atlantic Council. Thanks very much. Well, thank you and good morning. It is, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank the Atlantic Council for their very generous offer uh, to speak to you today. It's a very important topic. Um, and it was generous because when my staff asked how long I would have to talk, the answer came back 30 minutes or so. And I said, are you sure that they really want me to talk that long? I was reminded of a story um, as a junior commander where every morning we have quarters on the ship and the crew assembles. And I told the command master chief that the next day I was going to go out and address the entire crew. And the next morning came, and uh, I walked out on the deck with the command master chief, and no one was there. And I whirled and looked at him and said, Master Chief, didn't you tell the crew I was coming out to address them today at quarters? And he kind of paused for a minute, looked off in the distance, and said, uh, No, sir, I didn't, but it looked like they found out anyway. So. <laughs> So I'm very grateful for you to be here and, uh, and talk about this very important topic. At the Wales Summit, NATO identified two security challenges facing the alliance, a revanchist Russia and the multidimensional instability from the Middle East to the North Africa. Following the summit, NATO appropriately placed its immediate focus on the more dangerous threat of Russia based on their proven willingness to apply their military force to achieve their objectives. To build the NATO response, the summit focused on two elements in its readiness action plan. These elements were the assurance of our allies and adaptation. Adaptation involves the fundamental transformation of the structure and capabilities of the alliance. The initial actions of the RAP, or readiness action plan, were focused on the east NATO combined previously scheduled national and NATO exercises to increase the scope of activity. Nations increased the rotational deployments of forces to the east and initiated joint air policing and intelligence collection along the eastern borders of NATO. These actions were highlighted in the media with the intent of improving their visibility in the public domain. The intended effects were to reassure our allies and improve the integration of the underlying support structures in the eastern nations. There was a renewed focus on interoperability, logistics, and intelligence. The hard work now underway is the adaptation of the alliance focused on investing in military capability and capacity for a credible deterrent. To be credible, NATO's adaptation must focus on building the range of capability, increase its capacity or depth, and improve its responsiveness. Responsiveness is a new element as we have seen that Russian actions have fully integrated the elements of speed and strategic surprise. Air and land forces with cyber will dominate the center of NATO's defended territory. The North Atlantic, the Norwegian Sea, the Baltic, the Black Sea, the Mediterranean are the maritime flanks of the alliance. It is here we are observing the manifestation of a more aggressive, more capable Russian Navy. It is a naval capability focused directly 
on addressing the perceived advantages of NATO navies. And they are signaling us and warning us that the maritime domain is contested space. This year, Russia unveiled a new maritime strategy that places greater emphasis on the seas surrounding Russia and talks of projection into the Atlantic and Mediterranean. In statements in the public, they have talked about establishing a permanent presence in the Mediterranean and in breaking out from their perceived military encirclement by NATO, military structures, economic sanctions, and political isolation. The language coming from the Russian military reflects the mindset and actions characteristic of direct challenge and confrontation with NATO. What makes this approach troubling is hybrid warfare coupled with the ever-present threat of the full application of robust conventional and nuclear forces. This remilitarization of Russian security policy is evident by the construction of an arc of steel from the Arctic to the Mediterranean. Starting in their new Arctic bases to Kaliningrad in the Baltic and Crimea in the Black Sea, Russia has introduced advanced air defense, cruise missile systems, and new platforms. It is also building the capability to project power into the maritime domain. Their base in Syria now gives them the opportunity to do so in the eastern Mediterranean. This is a sea denial strategy focused on NATO maritime forces. Their intent is to have the ability to hold at risk maritime forces operating these areas and thus deter NATO operations. They are also expanding the reach of assets to project power from this arc, specifically the proficiency and operational tempo of the Russian submarine force is increasing. According to the Russian Navy Chief Admiral Cherkov, the intensity of Russian submarine patrols has risen by almost 50% over the last year. Russia has increased their operational tempo with this force to levels not seen in over a decade. Their Arctic bases and their $2.4 billion investment in the Black Sea fleet expansion by 2020 demonstrates their commitment to develop their military infrastructure on the flanks. Russia has also introduced new capabilities, such as newer and more stealthy nuclear-powered attack and ballistic missile defense submarines. They are also expanding the reach of their conventional submarines with advanced cruise missiles. Just last month, the first caliber-equipped Kilo-class submarine transited from the North Sea to the Black Sea, the first of six, bringing within its range the eastern half of Europe. Russia is also integrating asymmetric capabilities fully into their conventional military actions. This involves the use of space, cyber, information warfare, and hybrid warfare designed to cripple the decision-making cycle of the alliance. Their capabilities are focused on the creation of ambiguity. On land, Russia exploits ethnic and religious divisions, makes use of an aggressive information campaign, and extensively uses misinformation and deception to delegitimize the forces under attack while confusing the attribution of their actions. At sea, their focus is on disrupting decision cycles. To execute swiftly, they are also centralizing their national and military decision-making. We are seeing more frequent SNAP exercises focused on rapid mobilization and movement directed by central headquarters to include their naval forces, where we have seen large numbers of ships get underway with little or no notice. So given these developments, how should we consider adapting the NATO maritime forces for the future? 
Simply put, we must invest in our navies in three areas to be a credible deterrent in the maritime domain. First, we must invest in training at the high end of warfighting skill. Second, forces must be on call for real-world operations. And third, we must invest to pace the growing Russian capabilities. We should also begin to think differently about force generation. Today, the Allies are challenged to sustain, or should I say fully sustain, two standing naval maritime groups. Nations simply are not fully resourcing the standing naval forces in the face of competing national demands and limited funds. <clears throat> when properly trained and resourced, naval forces have the unique ability to aggregate and disaggregate quickly, and when interoperable, can quickly use common procedures and systems to generate effects. Our force generation must support proficiency against a high-end adversary. This effort should be built around demanding complex exercises. I'm speaking of exercises such as bolt ops, joint warrior, bold alligator, and trident juncture. Rather than create new exercises, we should leverage existing ones under framework nations of the alliance to conduct high-end events in theater ASW, air defense, and electronic warfare. Combined with the UK training provided to many of our allies, these exercises form the foundation for high-end interoperability on demand. We have found in the maritime domain there is no substitute for proficiency at sea. You do not get better sitting in port doing synthetic exercises. The nations must invest in proficiency training at the high end of warfighting. And the Allied navies have shown they want this training. Baltops this year had over 49 ships and conducted training and exercises in all domains. We will shortly hold Trident Juncture, the largest amphibious exercise NATO has conducted in several years, with over 68 ships, nine submarines, eight maritime patrol aircraft, and 3,000 Marines and an Allied force of 30,000, with amphibious landings in Sardinia and Portugal. Also this month, the Maritime Theater Missile Defense Forum will conduct an at-sea demonstration at the UK Hebrides range off the west coast of Scotland. We will exercise our ability to build a common tactical picture, share situational awareness, and execute coalition-level pre-planned responses with live missiles. With nine nations participating, this is the most significant sea-based missile defense exercise we've ever conducted in Europe. As the level of participation shows, when you conduct high-end training, the nations will come. But episodic exercises are not enough. NATO maritime commanders must have confidence in the proficiency of the alliance to aggregate forces, such as for real-world operations like theater anti-submarine warfare. To be a viable concept, nations would necessarily declare to NATO those forces underway each day in their approximate level of readiness, with an understanding the forces would be on call to the alliance in the event of a crisis. By our rough count, last week there were between 30 and 40 allied vessels underway or transiting European waters. On-call, proficient naval forces must be our goal. As we invest in training, we must also invest in our infrastructure to support ASW operations to demonstrate resolve across the theater. It is time to develop allied airfields to accommodate the forward deployment of the P-8 and other systems to theater. The final component of our high-end training should be the introduction of asymmetric elements into the naval exercise program. We must develop the forces to understand the full weight of cyber, electronic jamming, and anti-satellite operations that will be brought to bear against them. 
We must invest in systems that would enable us to fight through these effects. We are simply not as ready as we should be to counter these growing capabilities. It is therefore time to invest in systems to pace Russia. In this era of fiscal limits, allies should pool resources and form consortiums to purchase or lease the capabilities the U.S. may possess. The advanced ASW, air defense systems, and BMD capabilities are examples where this approach can leverage U.S. capability to improve the capacity within the alliance. In operating our force, we must not cede maritime battle space. We must continue to operate in the Black Sea and the Baltic Sea and sustain our own familiarity with the environment. NATO has demonstrated the ability to respond in the land and air domain, such as through the creation of the VJTF and the exercises we did last summer like Noble Jump in Poland. And it's now time to focus our investments, our training, and our commitment to creating and sustaining credible deterrence in the maritime domain. But the threat to NATO in the maritime domain does not only come from Russia. During the Wales Summit, in addition to addressing the challenges of Russia from the east, the alliance also began to consider the security challenges of the south. When compared to the east, the environment of the south is a challenge of alternative structures and strategies. The threat networks of al-Qaeda franchise and the jihadist networks in Africa remain serious threats to the West, and the lethality and capability of these organized non-state groups is increasing. Daesh, for example, now controls approximately 200 kilometers of the Libyan coast. What makes this threat particularly challenging is that no state structure exists for negotiation as it does with Russia. Their nature, composition, and hierarchy are fluid, difficult to analyze, and offer no mechanism for arbitration or dialogue. In the maritime domain, the Mediterranean may be a boundary or a highway, as we have seen in the last year, but it also contains energy infrastructure and oil and gas reserves that may be at risk. Further complicating this scenario is the incentive for potential adversary states to exploit the maneuver space within these conflict zones. The immediate challenge for NATO military commands is to improve our understanding of the networks and begin to provide our political leadership better situational awareness and consequently well-reasoned options for action. Unlike a unitary adversary, the range of actors and the social and governance challenges invite more than a military response. In fact, a military instrument is often not the appropriate response. Perhaps the challenges may be better addressed by national or EU mechanisms. Regardless of your view on this question, it is apparent the criminal, violent extremist, and paramilitary threat networks are adept at exploiting the seams between the national and international lines of effort. Cooperation is therefore paramount. So let me offer some recommendations for adaptation in the South. First, NATO must address the seams through policies that allow collective response of a range of organizations national organizations, coalitions, partners, international institutions such as the EU and NATO, and enable this continuum to collaborate, coordinate, integrate, and deconflict action. We should consider reaching agreements that allow more information sharing and strengthen existing authorities and agreements to find, fix, and process threats. And while we must draw on the strengths of different organizations to address these challenges, we must be ever mindful 
of their authorities, mandates, and missions. This is the necessary political first step before our military planners can create an appropriate set of assurance and adaptation measures for the South. Second, we must consider the framework or the mechanisms to provide this cooperation. As military planners, understanding the networks we are facing is a daily task. But having a mechanism to fuse information from military intelligence, academia, NGOs, and law enforcement will provide us better insight into the threat network. Additionally, a forum similar to what we assembled to fight piracy for shared awareness and deconfliction in the MED would assist this effort. And we may be aware of the, uh, the uh, shade mechanism that exists in the Middle East. This would be a voluntary forum in the Mediterranean for industry, the EU, NATO, and others to participate. Third, we should contemplate the development of a NATO exercise regime with southern-focused scenarios that test our ability to understand and respond to asymmetric threats. And fourth, we should develop a graduated response plans focused on the south. This theater is particularly suited for special forces actions in the maritime environment, so increasing capability, capacity, and exercises in this area would provide greater response options to NATO. The inclusion of some or all these initiatives in the next series of adaptation measures would allow NATO to improve its responsiveness and awareness in partnership with other international, national, and regional organizations. They would allow us to focus our capacity building efforts in countries where the local governments can assist NATO to meet the challenges we both face in the South. It will be a key task of the Warsaw Summit to consider and approve the specific framework for the South to enable our planners to move forward. Again, thank you for this very gracious opportunity to share my thoughts and perspectives, and I look forward to the discussion. Thank you very much. Admiral, thank you so much for, for your remarks. That was, that was terrific. And I, I think you, you very effectively laid out the, uh, mm -hmm. uh, the challenges for, for the transatlantic security community and, and some of the NATO responses to date. Mm -hmm. And then also uh, some recommendations and thoughts on how, how to think about the future of, of sea power in, in and mm -hmm. around Europe. So thank you so much. That, mm -hmm. that was terrific. Um, and, I, and I certainly want to involve all of our audience here in the, in the discussion. I know there, there are lots of folks uh, who are eager to, uh, to put their questions. But I, I do have a couple first before, sure. I, before I let the audience in on this. Um, so first, uh, you mentioned both the, the Baltic and the Mediterranean and, and, and other maritime domains around Europe. Um, but I think broadly speaking, there's been less attention uh, paid to the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. um, um, in more detail, what are you thinking in terms of, in terms of the Black Sea as a, as a friction zone between NATO and Russia? And, and how are you thinking about enhancing security and stability yeah. in that region? Well, certainly uh, what we're seeing, as I mentioned is a, in my remarks, is a significant investment in the infrastructure uh, we've seen the employ deployment of advanced cruise missile systems in the Crimea, uh, the buildup of military forces, the first of the six Kilo-class submarines with caliber now deploying to the air, and the equipping of, of their frigates and other ships with the caliber system. Uh, as we look, we're constrained to operate in compliance with the Montreux Convention, and so that limits our ability as a non-literal state uh, to operate in that area. But fortunately, we have three allies that are there in Bulgaria, Romania, and Turkey. And in my discussions, um, what they are looking for is, again, this opportunity to increase professional uh, development at the high end of warfare and ASW, 
increase investments in their maritime capability for as they see it, we don't want to see the space. So recently we conducted a, a series of exercises in the Black Sea. We're sustaining monthly presence in the Black Sea at this moment with U.S. naval ships or standing naval forces uh, as we operate and conducting exercises with ASW. But the investments have to happen for the literal nations for us to move forward in a, in a more significant way. Great. <clears throat> so as Barry mentioned during his, uh, during his intro remarks, uh, mm -hmm. NATO is obviously coming out of almost two decades of, mm -hmm. of, of difficult expeditionary operations mm -hmm. that have been primarily gr uh, ground-centric and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and expeditionary in nature. Um, from, from your vantage point, how has this affected um, the maritime mindset of Europe? And, and what are some of the specific capability shortfalls that, that you find today among European navies? Sure. Uh, what I think it's done is, is as nations have grappled with their own fiscal issues, uh, the emphasis on support of the land forces, we have often not uh, invested in the capabilities for advanced war fighting at sea. And with that, restrictions on uh, operations have limited proficiency for some nations. And I can think of several nations where their maritime forces have reduced in size and are just not simply proficient enough in operating at the high end. And so um, as I look to um, the results of it um, and where we should go forward and what systems, uh, I think we have an immediate challenge of bringing back multinational coalition theater anti-submarine warfare. And we are already partnering with the UK and France in this effort from the United States, but other nations need to join us in well, as well. Uh, second, I think that uh, um, uh, integrated air and missile defense will be a growth area of opportunity for the Allies as we see these threats get more advanced and more capable and they proliferate to the flanks, uh, the Allies will have to build their capacity in that area. And then third, I think, as I mentioned, the, the asymmetric aspects. Uh, this is a fundamental shift in culture for maritime forces. This is not just about kinetic effects. This is a culture about understanding that the maritime space is contested, <coughs> that you'll have to think about very high-level electronic jamming, about perhaps loss of satellites or global positioning system, and then how do you operate in that environment as a coalition force? And, and I think that's the way that we have to move forward in this regard. Great. So, so my final question is, um, uh, NATO released a maritime strategy in, mm -hmm. in 2011, mm -hmm. uh, which was then almost forgotten uh, as the alliance got busy with, mm -hmm. with Libya uh, and, and so forth. Do you think now is the time to, to relook the strategy or maybe even, maybe even write a new maritime strategy for the alliance? Yeah, I think as you look at the, the strategy document, it mirrors the NATO strategy and it focuses on three core tasks, uh, you know, crisis response and collective defense and, and capacity building or security uh, for the alliance. Those are fundamentally okay. What, what I look at is, is we have to focus on the means that we're uh, and, the, and the, you know, we've talked about the end, so it's ways and means that we have to talk about. And, and to me, it's the ways of restoring the high-end capability and proficiency of the force. It's in, in the ways portion. Um, we don't have the framework set for the South in terms of intelligence sharing, information sharing, and uh, our integration with other organizations that are responding there. So the strategy itself is fine, but I think the details of the other components of executing a strategy is what we have to focus our intellectual efforts on. Great. 
So I want to let our audience in here, and there's, there's only uh, two simple rules uh, for us to live by. Uh, <laughs> one, uh, uh, make it a question, not a statement, and, and two, please identify yourself before, before posting a question. Uh, uh, over here on my right, please. And uh, please wait for a microphone. Thank you. Anton Chudakov, Task News Agency of Russia. Admiral, thank you for your remarks. At the beginning of this summer, your command, uh, first time uh, since Ukrainian crisis, met this uh, Russian Navy delegation in Naples. Mm -hmm. uh, what has, has changed since then? Uh, what has changed in uh, U.S.-Russian Navy relationships? What follow-up steps are you planning uh, to take or you <coughs> have taken in uh, uh, dialogue with uh, Russia. Thank you. Very good question. Um, we held in Naples this year for the first time, I believe in two years, the incidents at sea uh, meetings with the Russian military. And those uh, meetings where we issued a statement from at the end identified some in uh, incidents and interactions between our forces. Um, but I would generally characterize the meetings as professional and the meetings were open and transparent in the discussions between the militaries. So in terms of that formal mechanism, uh, that mechanism was exercised uh, this past year. Um, as we look to our interactions between the forces, I would characterize that for our ships in the Baltic and the Black Sea, we have seen more aggressive behavior from the air forces and aircraft overflights but our interactions with the maritime forces have been professional and responsible uh, when we've interacted. So we look forward to continuing those professional relations at sea between the forces. And on the second row here on the, uh, on the left, then we'll go to you, Harlan. Ah, <coughs> uh, yes. Thank, thank you. Sydney Friedberg, Admiral, BreakingDefense.com. You mentioned several times bringing back the high end capacity, right. uh, and of course, you know, you and I are, are old enough to remember the good old, bad old days of the Cold War. Uh, but to what degree is this going back to the future, and to what degree is this a very new and different Russian threat that requires more than just dusting off the old playbook? You mentioned things like satellite, like cyber, mm -hmm. uh, other non-connects, for example, that require uh, a high-end response that may not necessarily look like the high-end response uh, of the 1980s, for example. Yeah, I think the way it looks different is um, if you go back to the exercises of the pre-1989 uh, Cold War period, we had exercises like Reforger and very large practice of movement of large forces to Europe uh, in response to a large land campaign. And the maritime element was in support of that uh, in really the transatlantic rear uh, was really the focus of the exercises. What I think that uh, has changed so dramatically is um, the very rapid ability of, of the escalation of conflict. And, and I think you know, one of the things I spend time thinking about is, is being careful about miscalculation or making sure that we don't have an unintended escalation between the forces. Um, and so what I, what I see in this conflict is one, uh, it will happen very rapidly. Second, it will combine hybrid and conventional elements in the sense mm -hmm. of is uh, cyber, electronic warfare jamming, and it will be very focused and happen rapidly along the flanks from our perspective. It will be very different than what we thought about in terms of the culture of a time to build up and then execute. I think the other piece um, that I spend a lot of time talking about is this culture change within our own militaries in that often naval forces have operated in a domain that isn't contested 
for them. And this will be a shift that will be very significant for them with all these other factors taking place. Okay. Uh, next up, Harlan Ullman on the front row here. Uh, I'm Harlan Ullman with the Atlanta Council. Uh, first, Magnus, I think those shoelaces are dynamite. I hope everybody can <laughs> see them. My wife dresses me. <laughs> <laughs> well, good, give her a pet on the back <laughs> or buy her some flowers. Mark, thanks very much for your being here and your comments. <clears throat> I wanted to refer back to your ways and means yeah. because I think you're absolutely right. I have argued valiantly and entirely unsuccessfully with NATO, with the countries on, on the mm -hmm. flanks in the Baltics and Romania and Bulgaria. We need to shift to a more defensive strategy. I made this case and have gotten nowhere. Romania bought F-16s, as you know, used from Portugal, and mm -hmm. they should have been doing other things. Mm -hmm. uh, Eleven years ago, when Don Rumsfeld was SecDef, he held a war game at Colorado Springs for the defense minister's meeting on transformation, which was a maritime exercise, which basically mm -hmm. was Libya that went berserk. Mm -hmm. It had profound positive effect, and had we not gotten so bogged down in Iraq, I think it would have worked. As you know, there's going to be a war game like uh, defense minister's meeting in February that Sandy Verschbau is overseeing. Mm -hmm. To what degree do you think you might get some maritime play to lay out these issues in front of the defense ministers to get some more traction in trying to change this mindset? Because you're absolutely right, it's a cultural need. We're still very much focused on a 20th century mindset mm -hmm. when we have to be geared up for the 21st. Is this war game an opportunity for you to make these points, or has that war game been overtaken by politics? No, I think there is an opportunity, and, and why I'm optimistic is that in the work strands leading up uh, to the Warsaw Summit is a discussion about reinvigorating and fully resourcing um, the standing naval forces. And there's a growing recognition by our allies in the South, particularly as they observe this buildup of military capability. And, and I would say Norway is a very strong advocate and concerned about the North. I would say that Romania, Bulgaria, very concerned. Now Turkey, growing concern on the flanks. So we have nations that are now bringing this forward. And I think this work strand uh, gives us the opportunity to address the ways and means uh, and to reinvigorate this effort. So I think there is a possibility for that. Um, Steve Benson on the third row. Admiral, hi. Steve Benson, Saab Defense. Um, you mentioned a, a workspace that's just incredible. So all the water space that mm -hmm. basically from the North Atlantic through to the, the China Seas. Mm -hmm. I know that NATO is uh, also looking at Japan as a, as a pr particular partner. What I'm wondering is specifically about Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. Mm -hmm. Given that uh, Russia was able to go into Crimea with two, three hundred little green men in a cyber campaign, mm -hmm. uh, how, how do we think about defending against something like that? Yeah. And I think that's a, a very strong concern from the alliance. Hence, you've seen the initiatives for the Very High Readiness Task Force. You've seen us conduct air policing and rotational deployments. We have talked about forward stationing of equipment uh, in those areas. And, and uh, uh, another key element, as I mentioned, was responsiveness. Uh, SACUR has to have the ability, and the NATO North Atlantic Council has to act rapidly in order to give us the authorities and permissions to move. Because uh, as we've seen, um, uh, there's the capability to move very rapidly uh, against the allies as we've watched this happen in Ukraine and in Georgia. And so my sense is, is that, is that uh, the maritime space is hindered by Kaliningrad and the extent of the defenses that are there. And I know the Air Force is expending significant time assessing those and looking at it. Uh, it's a very difficult problem. 
And so I think speed, investments in the capabilities, the VJTF and coming online with rapid movement. And as I talked about, we have to be very clear about fighting through ambiguity. Because as we watched in Ukraine, you create and try to delegitimize the forces that you're um, opposing, move very rapidly, combine hybrid with conventional forces, and you end up with a difficulty of attribution and a difficulty of what is really happening on the ground that, that tends to slow down decision making. And so we have to be more responsive and then be able to have the mechanisms to make the decisions quicker. So I don't want to leave this flank unattended. Please stay <laughs> in, the, uh, uh, in the back. <clears throat> Hi, Chris Cavus, Defense News. Um, I just got back from a trip to the uh, Nordic countries and I got a pretty good dose of the different um, senses of mm -hmm. urgency among those, those different countries. Mm -hmm. They're not a unified block. Um, NATO itself is not a unified block. One of the ultimate goals that Putin probably has is to is look for an opportunity to split NATO. So this sort of gray-green um, provocation or intervention mm -hmm. or invasion or whatever of the Baltics could, could be taken as something of a tripwire. What is NATO's response? What are all the different countries, how they're going to respond to Article 5? Mm -hmm. will, will Germany follow through? Norway clearly is not, not, not on the same level that, that Sweden and Denmark and uh, mm -hmm. Finland are at. Um, those aren't NATO countries, but they're going to respond. Mm -hmm. So what is your sense of the overall strength of the alliance, mm -hmm. and what are your worries about how a provocation like that mm -hmm. could split the alliance? Mm -hmm. I think if you look at the statements from Wales and then all the subsequent ministerials and statements, I think alliance unity um, has been held and it's been, uh, I think, reaffirmed through all those separate meetings. Um, it is clear that the Russian intent is to split the alliance and views NATO as an existential threat, um, its political institutions, its military capability as a threat you know, which it's not because it's a defensive alliance aligned for the defense of NATO territory. Um, there are varying views across the nations of the alliance on the immediacy and the severity of the NATO threat. And, and how NATO has balanced that is to talk equally about the threats to the South. If you read the communique from Wales, it's in the same paragraph and sentence as the North and the South. So the alliance is trying to balance those two things in terms of their immediacy and their danger. But I think all recognize that the unity of the alliance in response to Article 5 is the fundamental uh, value of the alliance, and we'll preserve that. Yes, I'm Russell King, retired federal employee. I just had uh, another question about the Arctic. Basically, sure. it has to do with icebreakers. I understand we're we rather don't have too many mm -hmm. functioning icebreakers, but I'm I'm wondering is there is there a, does that pose a problem in NATO, or is, does Norway uh, and other Arctic nations able to, to do the icebreaking workforce? And, and where, where exactly is our Achilles heel as far as icebreakers? Do we, do we need more? And if we do, where do we deploy them? Um, well, I, I, I leave that to the realm of those in Washington with that, uh, with that understanding. But, but I have none available to me from the U.S. inventory uh, for use. And and so uh, I leave that to the decision makers here in this country in order to uh, about a decision about funding them. Um, the Arctic's very interesting in that in the Western perspective, we think of the Arctic 
probably in three tiers of action and thought. Uh, the first is safety of those individuals and, and ships that are operating up there. Second is the environment, protection of the environment as it's operating. And then very far down is security and, uh, and the introduction of military force in the Arctic. And, and that's what I see in most of the Western allies. If you look at that in uh, the actions that we're seeing in the construction of bases across the Arctic, the militarization jumps up to the top with the other two falling behind it. So I think uh, there's, you know, certainly Norway, uh, you know, Denmark, those nations are, are, are influenced and investing at an appropriate level for their national interests. Um, and I think the U.S. has to make that decision as we assess our own set of priorities and actions in the future. Back over there, on the on my right. Daniele Moro, U.S. Italy Forum. Uh, Admiral, my question is about Libya. In few weeks, uh, we could have an international operation, UN, mandate, whatever. How do you assess your position in the South scenario, vis-à-vis -vis Libya? Yeah, let me. Uh, Libya is uh, right now a, a series that has two governments that are feuding. You have, in the middle, you have tribal areas that are under control. You have uh, ISIL now controlling 200 kilometers of the coast. And, and we're seeing within that space criminal networks <coughs> smuggling people, um, you know, loading them with boats and sailing them up toward the task force. And, and so it's an area of ungoverned space with warring factions, with oil infrastructure of particular importance to Italy from any that's right off the coast. Um, the European naval force, which has stood up, uh, has on a daily basis about four to eight ships that are operating in that area, perhaps some submarines from some of the nations. And what I see taking place, they've developed a plan that's really in about four phases. The first phase is be aware of the environment. They've just about completed that phase. The second phase is to begin to intercept the boats as they cross out of uh, Libyan territorial waters into international waters. We expect that phase to begin shortly. And then the third phase is intercepts within territorial waters and then operations in conjunction with a government ashore to stop the actions on the beach. But we're locked, as you correctly say, of operating outside international waters until we have a government, a unity government we can deal with, and we have a UN Security Council resolution that they can move forward. Um, NATO at present has no role within this operation. Uh, the United States is sharing information with our partners. Italy is one, the United Kingdom, others, uh, through our bilateral intelligence agreements. Um, our forces are complying as they do with the, the safety of life at sea should we encounter those individuals coming. But at present, there's no role for NATO. As I talked about in my discussion, um, these organizations operate between the seams. They find where NATO is not, where the EU is and is not, and where the Coast Guards and the national elements, and they sail between the seams in terms of their function and operating until we close down and get a cohesive framework and address the problems ashore, uh, we're not going to effectively address what's happening in Libya. And that includes a unity government and the UN Security Council. I believe I spied a question here in the back. Uh, please. Thank you, Admiral, for a good uh opening remarks. Uh, I have a question because you, uh, I'm uh, uh, 
Jacob Russell from the Danish Embassy. Um, with regard to, you were talking about the change of the means of uh, the right. alliance and that uh, for the last decade it has sort of been focusing on uh, expeditionary right. operation and uh, for the uh, uh, naval perspective very much on uh, counter piracy and uh, those niches. Mm -hmm. um, the question is that there has been been a big change to the NATO command structure as well during these times mm -hmm. and uh, whether this change has also narrowed down the uh, cap capabilities for the command structure mm -hmm. or are we are we in a position where we also need to look at whether that has to be changed with the change in the uh, security environment? Yeah, I, I believe, if, if I'm correct, coming out of Wales was a task to look at the command structure. But I, I frame it in terms of responsiveness. Whatever changes we make in, in the ways and the means for the alliance um, have to address a command structure that is responsive, that could move swiftly, that can plan and act uh, and execute. And at the present situation, we have five major commands on the same line. Uh, that works well in peacetime and it works in force generation. But what we're finding as we exercise the VJTF and move forward, we may have to think differently about how we set up our command structures in response to speed and surprise. Please. <clears throat> here, on the, uh, here in the middle on, on, this, uh, on this side. Thank you, Imre Porkla from uh, ACT, Electrum and Transmission. Sir, you mentioned uh, Trident Juncture just kicked off and a significant right. role for Navy. Uh, the next high visibility exercise is planned for 18 in Norway. What do you think, what should be the capabilities that, that should be developed on the naval side and, and what should be the focus for an exercise uh, in sure. Norway in 18? Um, uh, as you look at, you know, and, and this is one of the things as I talked in my remarks, we have the ability to use framework nations to run these large exercises and you know joint warriors like that um, there are others shark hunt that are, that we do for very large exercises when we talk about what's going to happen in the next livex i think uh, we should at every opportunity make these exercises live in terms of numbers of troops amphibious and and bring the assets that we need to make them sufficiently complex uh, that challenge us in the operational domain as opposed to a set of scripted events I think the second piece is that they have to be in all domains. We should weave in the elements of cyber, the elements of satellite denial, the elements of uh, electronic warfare and jamming to challenge us to operate in this space. And, and, and there should be elements of free play. And by that I mean unscripted events that allow commanders to make decisions and to execute. Those, those key elements, I think, as we improve you know, the readiness, proficiency at the high end of the maritime forces ought to be woven into the exercises. Thank you. Hi, Admiral. Thanks for doing this. I'm Jim Garamon with uh, AFPS. Um, you know, it seems like forever ago, but it really was only about 20 years that uh, sec then Secretary Perry and Secretary Cohen uh, sponsored that Mediterranean Dialogue, I think it mm -hmm. was called. Yep. Um, haven't we grown, ha, is that still active? Are we still dealing with that? And you also mentioned right. intel sharing with some of the folks on the southern flanks. With whom uh, specifically? I mean, don't we have intel sharing with most of the folks that, that would concern us? Um, 
Let me talk the first part. Yes, the Mediterranean dialogue is active, and it's, for those that aren't familiar with us, the countries mostly along the northern part of Africa that we deal with, and we have had political discussions, but I think where we have to go, my headquarters is hosting a conference in December for the Mediterranean dialogue countries, and we're awaiting um, the a political approval of the framework for the South coming out of the North Atlantic Council. Once we have that, that will identify the actions, the security agreements we can enter into, and the specific capacity building measures that we can start to undertake. Those engagements are happening under the Mediterranean Dialogue, but I think they need the framework of the South um, approved by the North Atlantic Council for us to move forward in a more, more coherent way and responsive to these threats that we've seen evolve over the last year or so uh, out, of the, out of the North Africa region. Um, your second part again, if we could cover that. Sure. Um, NATO is interesting in an intel sharing perspective. It shares intelligence what the nations are willing to give. And, and so um, we receive intelligence from those nations that offer it. We don't have a formal collection framework except in the East right now. Um, we also do not have agreements to share with the EU from NATO. So everything is done on a bilateral basis. So um, the U.S. can share with Italy or share with France or share with Spain or share with the U.K. Uh, on a bilateral basis, but we don't have the ability from a NATO standpoint, from the NATO staff to share, for example, with the, the EU task force. Those mechanisms do not exist presently. Everything is bilateral in the intel sharing field. And so as a consequence, the, one example is the head of the EU naval forces uh, gets his intelligence from various individual nations from him as opposed to any centralized assessment. And, and he's trying to process all of that. So I see this as an area ripe for uh, information sharing. There are very few places, and there's lots of stovepipes. When you start looking at the criminal intelligence piece, uh, focus on narcotics and human trafficking, when you look at the military side, focus on military capabilities, and the EU, which is often focused on whole of government, economic, and social. Um, what I'm advocating for is that we have to bring together those different aspects in a more coherent framework for the alliance. Thank you, Claudio Bisognero, the Italian ambassador and former NATO Deputy Secretary General. Uh, thank you for the way you have presented the outcome of Wales and the different sets of challenges that NATO is confronted with in the East and in the South. And I have two or three questions on the maritime strategy in the Mediterranean, but I do so uh, as representative of a nation whose credentials in the East and the North are impeccable. We have just concluded eight months of air policing in the right. Baltics, as you know, very successfully so. We will have the lead of the DJTF in two years' time. We do participate in those exercises you mentioned, and we are participating in the Estonian Cyber Center of Excellence, uh, uh, as, you, as you know. Um, on the maritime strategy, uh, in particular in Mediterranean, three specific questions uh, to enhance the capabilities and the effectiveness of our operations in that very, very crucial area for the reasons you have described. Number one, do you see uh, active endeavor uh, evolving uh, away from an Article 5 uh, operation, which maybe has outdone that particular purpose into a different set of a mission? Number two, how do you see enhancing the collaboration with the 
European forces in the Mediterranean, what kind of specific forms could that collaboration and interaction take? And number three, given the shortcomings in the generation, the fourth generation for the as an S, uh, how do you see the possibility of having nations providing uh, associate forces, associate vessels, meaning retaining the national command, but being associated for a limited time to the NATO forces? Thank you. Uh, first of all, Excellency, let me thank you very much for your country's support of the U.S. Navy and, and of NATO. Uh, just in the Naples area alone, we have approximately 9,000 uh, staff members and their civilians who live and work uh, uh, in, in Italy, and so we very much appreciate your support and your strong support as an ally. Um, let me talk about the forums. Uh, one is, I'll, I'll answer your questions in a little bit different order. Um, first, in the cooperation forums, uh, I mentioned a shade-like mechanism. That, brings the, that could bring together the EU naval force, NATO, individual nations, industry, academia, and NGOs is one potential. Second, um, I think a forum where if the EU naval force operating in Rome, as it does, uh, if we have the authority to share na uh, assessments from the alliance with them, uh, or you know, we can certainly do that. We are already sharing with Italy on a bilateral basis the intelligence. So I think a shade mechanism, co closer cooperation between the EU and NATO, and, and then I think and bringing in law enforcement and others into this the EU has a very strong um, counter-narcotics analysis center, for example, in Lisbon. And so that brings together Interpol and all sorts of organizations, yet they're not connected to NATO. So I think we have an opportunity to leverage some of these forums as we go forward. Uh, second, uh, as I talked about in my paper where nations are operating forces underway, uh, we see 30 to 40, sometimes more, underway under national control. If the nations would declare their readiness and offer them for associated support on call, I think that gives us an alternative to generate forces quickly with the understanding that if I need 15-ship task force in the Eastern Med for a specific operation, that the nations would say, yes, we'd make them available for you and here's where they are with political approval to do so. But it's this philosophy of rapid aggregation and availability as opposed to the current construct was you give me a ship for six months, correct? Um, and, and nations are finding that difficult to do. But if we build the training, if we build the proficiency and practice the aggregation, disaggregation, I think that would be viable for us going forward. And the third piece, active endeavor, um, my, my preference would be that we think of the South as southern endeavor and create an umbrella framework of operations. Active endeavor would be one component of it, of interdiction, but it could also include these other threats that we see under an umbrella operation, perhaps operated by one of the NATO military commands, like Maritime Command uh, or uh, one of the JFCs. So I think that I see active endeavor evolving to be broader in terms of its scope and responsibility. Mm -hmm. Ian, please. Mark, thank you for your yeah. very great to see, see you again, Ian. Thank you for your very uh, sobering assessment of the maritime situation NATO faces, and mm -hmm. I hope your remarks will be will be published because I think very important. Mm -hmm. Let me push you a little bit because, as a civilian, as a non-military person, mm -hmm. I noticed you really highlighted the A2 AD threat mm -hmm. that uh, the alliance is facing in the Baltic and mm -hmm. the Black Sea. Mm -hmm. The Norwegian Minister of Defense was here. 
talking about it in the Arctic and North, North Atlantic. Your priorities emphasized, you, that you emphasized were ASW, intelligence sharing, uh, air and missile defense, mm -hmm. uh, ISR. It, it, I'm wondering, why didn't you mention strike capabilities? Because mm -hmm. if you're going to deal with an A2, AD environment, probably the most effective way to deal with it is to take it out. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do, are you confident that the Alliance has the strike capacities, the, the, the missiles, the chasms, the attackums, mm -hmm. the tomahawks, and their equivalent, European equivalents, necessary to address this, this challenge? Mm -hmm. Do we need to give it more emphasis as part of this mm -hmm. plan to better address this new mm -hmm. challenge? Yeah, I, I focus my remarks that way. One, because NATO is fundamentally a defensive alliance, and the focus that I'm placing on is having sufficient capacity, capability, and responsiveness in the maritime domain as a deterrent capability and to sustain our ability to operate. Um, uh, as I look at what's available in theater and on call, uh, I don't see, there are some shortfalls in some specific areas that, that uh, you know, we can't discuss here, but I, I feel fairly confident that the force flow of those munitions and the things that we would need if we were to get into that type of conflict requiring strike would be available to the Alliance. And right behind Ian. Hello, Fritjof Jacobsen from the Norwegian newspaper VG. Uh, uh, you said as well the anti-submarine warfare would be very uh, important to strengthen and enhance. Could you elaborate a bit on the new uh, Russian capabilities from the uh, submarine warfare side that makes this such a high priority, please? Um, I think, and, and first of all, your country is very aware up there of, of the actions. We're seeing the development of two new classes <coughs> of submarines uh, that are very stealthy and modern that are deploying uh, in the area. We're seeing an increase in the operational tempo uh, of their submarine force that's ranging out into the North Atlantic. We're seeing the development of their diesel submarines with advanced cruise missiles that are now being deployed to the Black Sea. Um, that capability combined with what I observe in their proficiency and their operating tempo uh, indicates a significant change in what we've seen in the previous 15 or 20 years. And so um, for us, as we look at uh, the force levels that we have, do I have enough, to me is the uh, the question I asked, do I have enough of our theater ASW forces? The United Kingdom divested itself of maritime patrol air several years ago in one of its defense reviews. So I deploy American aircraft to the United Kingdom to operate in the North Atlantic and can send them up. Also, we deploy out of Norway. We go out of Iceland uh, when we operate. So it's the capacity of maritime patrol air. It's the, it's the ability of our submarine force as an alliance to operate in these areas where we need to invest more in. Please. Second round. Why not? Uh, Re-engage re the target since it's still floating. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, there, there are only two kinds of people, reporters and targets. Uh, but to, you men mentioned the ASW aspect. Two things jumped out at me. One that you, you haven't addressed is mine warfare, and you know, the, the Russians are the inventor of the MOH, which everybody has copied, mm -hmm. as well as lots of more sophisticated stuff. And there are a lot of narrow waterways uh, in and around Europe. Uh, and second, they are also very adept at electric warfare, which our Navy is trying to get back into, but has mm -hmm. 
you know, we sort of lost MCON mm -hmm. uh, over a couple of decades. Mm -hmm. So, and those, you know, very high and low tech areas, where do you see the uh, capabilities gaps uh, sure. in EW and mines? Uh, I think one of the success stories of the standing naval forces is that we've been able to fully resource the standing NATO mine countermeasure groups. And those units are rehearsed and practiced, and they are very familiar with the waters in the Baltic and in the other areas. And, and I feel confident in that capability plus the others that the Alliance could bring to bear. That, that has not been an issue for us uh, in the past. Um, and let me go to your next question after that. The, the, a lot, what was it? Yeah. So um, I, I think we have to assess Russia as a near-peer competitor in all things of electronic warfare, cyber, and asymmetric means. And with that, uh, the efforts that we're focusing on is changing the culture uh, of the forward deployed naval forces in Europe. And that culture looks to integrating these types of effects into our training and exercises and taking into account what happens when uh, you start to lose capabilities through jamming, through cyber, through asymmetric means. But the U.S. is leading that effort, and my point is we have to weave it into the NATO exercises to make sure all the allies see how quickly capabilities can be degraded under a full-born assault of those types of uh, actions. So since the torpedo tubes out here seem to be empty, I, I will take the privilege of, of asking one, one final question okay. from, from, from my you. end. You, um, um, you mentioned a couple of times, say, a, a framework approach or, or a maritime framework mm -hmm. concept for the, for the South mm -hmm. um, to, to try to tie the, the challenges and the, and the different actors together. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that's a concept that potentially can be used elsewhere? Um, for example, a Baltic Sea or the, or the high north, or are the, are the challenges so different that that's not really a, an approach that can be used? I think, uh, as I articulated, the challenges are very different. Um, and so I feel we have pretty well rehearsed mechanisms for self-defense, information sharing, uh, cooperation and collaboration in the, in the military sense in the north. And I see that only getting stronger with the VJTF and the framework nations stepping up to execute that. What I see in the south and why I talk about that is the, the multifaceted nature of the threats the integration of criminal elements with, with national forces, with advanced cruise missiles. I mean, I, I sit and think about what would happen if someone got an advanced cruise missile or a, uh, a ballistic missile in Libya. And how would I respond to that as I look to the future if those proliferate? So because there's not a unitary actor or the ability to negotiate or the ability to deter in many ways, that I think this framework is vitally important. And I, it'll be the main task of the Warsaw Summit to create this for us for the South. Admiral, thank you so much for, for coming to the Atlantic Council and spending mm -hmm. some, some time with us. And also thank you for sharing your, your thoughts and ideas on, on, right. on the range of challenges that you face. And, and clearly you were in a very important job at a, at a mm -hmm. very important time. And, and on behalf of the Atlantic Council, we want to thank you for, for your service right. and, and all your hard work. And, and I would like to thank each of you for your support of transatlantic security. I believe the NATO Alliance is the bedrock of our security architecture globally. And so I really appreciate your attention and all your efforts in support of the Alliance. It's, it's the fundamental alliance of, of U.S. national security, and I firmly believe that. Thank you. Great. And also thank, thank you, you to the audience for all the great questions. And see you next time. All right. Thank you.